Hello and welcome to this very short introduction to the first long-form conversation stroke interview of 2020 for the Imperfect Buddha podcast. As I mentioned in the introduction to this year, part of my plan is to try and be a little bit more succinct, a brief, if you will, with some of the content I produce from my side. There are a few points I want to quickly cover. The first one is on the practicing life more generally, which continues to be the undercurrent of the material coming out this year. So from that perspective, I will be trying to give sense to the content, whether it's from me or with a conversation within the context of a practicing life. Now, some folks have asked over the years and a bit more this time round because of my direct request in the introduction to have people say what it is they might like in terms of content, asking for practice-based information. And I'm kind of in two minds about that. The first one really is because there's so much out there already, you don't really need me to give you what you already have, which is part of my modus operandum. I'm not gonna do things that people have already done. What's the point? You can go there and get it, and we all save time. But the practicing life is of course rooted in the understanding that a practice is carried out. And part of my practice is, well, filling in an intellectual gap, a knowledge gap, and dare I say, a maturation gap in the world of contemporary Western Buddhism and spirituality more broadly. This is why I get so many academics on and why we often have the kinds of discussions we do. I see that as a compliment, really, to the more detailed specifics and what you might do with your posture, your hands, your breath, your imagination as you sit down and do something that most of you think of as practice, right? Meditation. Of course, we've already said that practice is far beyond just sitting and far beyond just meditation. So that's kind of the reason why we're doing what we're doing. The other reason as well is that as somebody who coaches, I generally work one-to-one -one with people and the idea of giving generic advice just doesn't seem to be the best. That's one of the reasons I prefer coaching to group teaching in these matters. I just find that people come up with all of their baggage, their conceptual framework, their life experience, their language and culture. Remember, I'm British, many of you are Americans, but not only. And even the British-American divide is distinct enough that, for me at least, if I was going to give somebody some kind of advice on what they're doing in their personal, intimate practice space, I'd want to know them a lot more before assuming that I might even have anything worth saying. So that's that. Daniel and I are Generation Xers, He's a little bit older than I am, but not a huge amount. And our conversation, I think, is sprinkled with some of the diversity of Generation X compared to the Boomers and Millennials. Part of what's certainly a feature of Generation X is a certain amount of self-deprecating humor and a certain sense of, well, you know, irony might be useful on occasion. And I do my best to play the devil's advocate throughout. I'm no expert on Wilbur's thought and integral theory. I share my two cents, but partly as a way to, well, keep the conversation on track and hopefully provide some of the questions, doubts or thoughts that some of you, who are similar to me, might have. So, see what you make of it. It's a slightly different approach to usual. The conversation is fun though, and Daniel's a great sport in providing some of his thought and ideas on the topic at hand. Wilbur, by the way, interesting, a product of his age. And I think if we're going to be generous, he's uh, really displaying an attempt to engage the great feast, that wonderful concept we've spoken about on this podcast. The problem with him is that he's, well, he's full of many of the flaws of the 90s and of the New Age world and of market capitalism playing its role in spirituality. 
I guess in part that's his fault, I guess in part it's not. But he is flawed like all of us, and as soon as we remember that, and we apply that more broadly to folks, we can have a little bit more sympathy, a little bit more empathy, and a bit more appreciation for why people do what they do, don't do what they might do, or are really doing things in the way that they do. Hail the loss of gurus. Isn't this where we're heading in part? Finally, a quick recommendation for podcasts. Old Vince Horn, nice chap himself, and gets a mention, by the way, in our conversation today, has of late been recommending things he actually listens to. Well, I'm not going to do that because I generally don't listen to Buddhism or spirituality podcasts. I just kind of had enough, really. It's not to say that they're not good. It's just I don't get much from them anymore. But I have been listening to some episodes of The Portal by Mr. Weinstein. And there are two episodes in particular I'd like to recommend because I think they're profound and connect to a deep level of humanity, which we could do more of. They are with Rabbi Volpe or Wolpe and Julie Lindor. Go and check them out if you're interested. My five minutes are up. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. You lucky listeners, we have yet another dose of our wonderful friend, Daniel Ingram, who's been traveling around the world, having adventures, but right now is back in Alabama. So Daniel, thank you for giving up your time and coming on to, well, really to to take care of this appointment that we had kind of on the shelf, right, which is to talk about the, the work of Ken Wilber and your take on some of his integral theory, because I imagine it's not going to be all of it, right? No, there's there's no way to cover all of it easily. Right? It'd take weeks. It would take weeks, if not years, which would probably make someone like Wilbur happy. But <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I should start off by giving a bit of background about what I think about a couple of items without spending too much time talking. Please go for it. I've got time. I should state that I've tried to read Wilbur's work on various occasions since I was actually quite young, and I really was turned off at every turn. I mean, the basic premise of integral theory, well, it just seems quite sort of obvious, really, you know, the idea that we would try to relate different paradigms and fields of knowledge to see how we might integrate them into a more complete or holistic global view. That kind of makes sense to me. A couple of critiques that go together. One is that uh, somebody complained about the fact that it's very unemotional and very male which is not the words I would use, but perhaps I did find it a bit too dry in places intellectually. And secondly, I detected, I think, right from the beginning, a kind of uh, a rather, let's say, overly strong affection for oneness and wholeness and this kind of mixing together of Buddhism and Hinduism and the Neo-Advaita. And I think that's something that I've been quite allergic to for some time, and I'll be interested to hear what you think about that. I'm sure you're well aware a lot of the, the Buddhist boomers in America have long kind of brought those two together in ways which are not always, in my view, functional or necessarily wise. But I kind of understand why people would do that at the same time. I just think that Wilbur's resting on this premise that eventually we'll all get to oneness if we can just integrate everything well enough. And I'm not sure I'm convinced by that. So that would be my, my second reservation. So I would agree that there is something sort of hyper-masculine and analytical and dry about plenty of Ken Wilber's thought. There's no question about that. Your critique is, I mean, it's widespread that people have that view and reaction. So it's not just you. I think it's, you know, as much as things are intrinsic to the thing, it's intrinsic to the thing. I also would totally agree 
that a sort of nebulous kind of Vedantic oneness, true self, yet married to no self in some integral <laughs> unitive way thing that also annoys the crap out of me at times is also found. And in fact, I was just looking towards the end of this little book I actually hold in my hand, The Integral Vision, a very short introduction, mm. which is 150 relatively small pages that make his work at least tolerable and pretty well presented. If, if you're going to read a book on this stuff, I would pick up the integral vision. It's like one of those little like sort of summary books you find in a bookstore, like up at the front with summaries of everything else or something. If you want to get into this, that's a great place to start because you can read the whole thing in like less than two hours. Right. And who's who's that published by? Is that by the integral? Uh, Shambhala, I think. It's a yeah, Shambhala. Shambhala. Okay. Okay. It makes me think of a series of books called A Very Short Introduction. Have you come across those? Uh, this is a very, that is exactly the oh, series. Oh, it's exactly what it is. Okay, great, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so both of your critiques, I think, are perfectly reasonable. But I think you're going to like some of my take on his stuff. Because <laughs> I actually address a lot of that and what we're going to get into, mm. or hopefully will. Mm. Another critique that came up, and I don't know if you have any knowledge of this, is the fact that, uh, well, I guess like all groups, uh, Ken's integral groups in the past have tended to become quite sort of clicky a little bit cultish perhaps, and a little bit insider-outsider divisive. And uh, that put off quite a few people who were very open to the kind of the integral premise, but then found themselves being turned off by people walking around claiming some degree of superiority by being something along the lines of second-tier thinkers, although I actually don't know what that means, and then talking in strange language such as they must be a yellow, a blue, or a purple, or a green, or some such matter. I don't know if you're going to be talking about that stuff. Yeah, I, I myself can also find that really fucking irritating. So we're not going to have any colors at all. Like, I'm not going there. Like, okay, good. It's, it's, it's not that I can't appreciate a few of the points that are kind of being made by yeah. Spiral Dynamics and yeah. sort of the colors. And it's not that it's just all totally useless, mm. but it can, I agree, um, rapidly get very sort of cultish, clicky insider language. I'm going to introduce relatively few terms, and I'm going to take my time to kind of explain them. Mm -hmm. So you also have to know where I'm coming from. So I ran into the book, The Spectrum of Consciousness, as found by my friend Kenneth, when I was in college. This was his first book, and he wrote it when he was very young. And so it actually, part of Wilbur I was exposed to, A, this is way before he was clicky and a popular thing and part of the sort of pseudo elite intellectual whatever, because he wasn't much of a thing then. I also have never been in any of his cliques, nor have I been really that close to them. So I felt like an outsider. Mm. So I have myself luckily never run into that whole social dynamic, thank God, because it gave me an ability to sort of look at the theory and a very old kind of first draft version of the theory, which weirdly enough, most of which I like better. Now, there are a few things of his later stuff I like, and we'll touch on those, but it's su I'm going to go super summary. So I'm not going to, this is not going to be an elaborate discussion of uh, like a, a zillion different models. I actually, weirdly enough, took his first model, simplified it a little bit, modified it to suit my own tastes, and then have been applying it in what I think is still a pretty Ken Wilberian spirit, if such a thing exists. And yet, with a pretty hefty dose of down-to-earth reality, as I think you'll like. Mm. But, oddly enough, the reason I want to talk about this is I still use it as basically the overview of how I think about my path. Mm. Which is something I've talked about very rarely, because most platforms 
I didn't think had the time or the interest to actually allow me to sort of go through and discuss and lay the whole thing out. But you, maybe, if you have a tolerance for it, <laughs> will allow such a discussion to occur. Well, just remember the you is also the audience. <laughs> sure. Right. Absolutely. We should definitely have as one of our aims not to switch them off. <laughs> right. No, I think I think this is going to be fun. Okay. So okay. I'm okay. happy to dive in at any time you're ready. Yeah. Yeah. You just reminded me as well that I've heard um, various members of the, the Dharma Overground mentioning Wilbur's work. So if I'm not wrong, I think your, your friend Vince Horn is also kind of partial to a bit of Wilbur integralism. He's way more Wilburian than I am. You said Kenneth, you didn't mention the surname there. So for listeners that don't know, you were referring to Kenneth Folk, right? Oh, yeah, correct. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. So is he still into Wilbur as well? Or is he kind of like you? I do not know. I've had conversations with Hokai Sabul about the work of Wilbur too. I know he's found something useful within it, but we've never really had a, a an explicit conversation about which bits he uh, still thinks about or utilizes in his own practice and sense of path. But uh, there's actually quite limited critique of Wilbur's work. And I have to say I was slightly disappointed by that because I always like to start with critique and then come back to it and say, well, what do I think without, you know, taking them on board too much? But um, I realized after a while that's because most, let's say, academics or intellectuals just don't take his work seriously at all. That said, what has been happening in the last decade or so is that people from different kinds of uh, fields of practice and thought, uh, many of them in the academic world, have started to experiment with pieces of Wilbur's work, and they've taken on a very sort of broad understanding of integral, and they're kind of making it their own. And when I read some of their stuff, especially on things like integral ecology, it seems to return to this uh, common sense reading that I started off with, you know, which is the idea that, well, well, why wouldn't you want to integrate different fields of knowledge in order to enhance and uh, make your understanding of a phenomena, whatever it is, whether it's meditation or practice or ecology, more sophisticated? Because I imagine you probably agree with this. One of the limitations I think that we've been dragging with us for a while is this tendency for many of the academic fields to still kind of stay within their own boxes to some degree. And it seems to me that we live in a time in which that just won't cut the mustard. You know, we actually need people thinking beyond the confines of philosophy, psychology and contemplative practices. So let's see if you're going to take us in that direction a little bit too or not. Where would you like to start? What would be the first thing we need to kind of grasp in order to start thinking about this in a useful way in the way that you have? Well, I'd actually like to lay out slightly more background even than you have, even as much as I want to get into the, the meat of the thing, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Part of how this arose in you and I's conversation is that we were talking about speculative non-Buddhist site. I almost hate to raise the specter of them sometimes, <laughs> but yet that they were part of the impetus mm -hmm. for this. Because often when yeah. I read the speculative non-Buddhist site, which again, like as much as I kind of spar with them, I have a lot that I appreciate about them. So we have to recognize that this is, it's, you know, I have a very mixed set of reactions to what happens there. Some of which I think is quite positive, some which I find repugnant, and some of which I think is sort of in this weird gray zone. And part of that gray zone, mostly, involves the fact that I sometimes think, wow, I wish they brought in just a little bit of integral theory. They wouldn't have to go hog wild on it. But some of the underlying concepts and frameworks, I think, are really useful to a lot of their discussions, and they don't seem to have that. And as, as we'll talk about when we get to what I'll call, you know, band four or whatever. Oh, right. We're already into letters and bands and stuff, but like, which is the sort of existential or sort of predominant of the intellectual band of human experience. 
that one can get kind of fascinated by itself and can sort of forget some of the other bands and how they operate together, which again, I haven't explained yet. But I kept thinking these kinds of thoughts as I read the speculative non-Buddhist stuff. And I thought they could use a little bit of integral theory, just a teaspoon, not a whole gallon maybe, mm-hmm. to, to sort of help and enhance their discussion and lend some clarity to what I think are sometimes category errors, which we'll also talk about. And a category error philosophically is basically when you have sort of a question, one part of the question is framed with reality divided one way, sort of um, Larawellian decisions are set up one way. And then the second part of the question where like that operates on the setup is divided another way. And most spiritual questions that get complicated or seem convoluted or unresolvable are actually based on this sort of category error thinking. And I have found that Ken Wilbur, for all his quirks and faults, does a great job of providing frameworks that allow a step back and a better perspective that helps disentangle some of the problems with a lot of spiritual, intellectual, political, rhetorical discussions. And so I must say, for that, I am incredibly grateful. Mm-mm. And I have found it really functionally useful. And I think you will see why it's useful and why it would be helpful to even thinking about reading news articles or having political discussions or thinking about recognizing the various frameworks that people are coming from, even if they may not recognize they're kind of coming from those paradigms. Yeah, I can get on board with that. But one thing that came to mind while you were speaking and mentioning the SMB boys again is... Uh, and girls. And girls. Are there some there? I, I think so. Maybe they're hiding in the background, but not in the comments section. My question might be, uh, which you may or may not know the answer to, of course, but would be why might they be resistant to taking on board something like integral theory if we were to give a generous reading towards that behavior? And I wonder if they, they wouldn't just accept some of the more general critique that because Wilbur has designed, let's say, or constructed his ideal and his idea of this all-encompassing grand narrative about the world, that he starts off on the wrong foot in the first place, therefore they won't consider his work. And I can't help but think that some of these, let's say, less spiritual folks who are taking on some of the premises of the integral approach may actually be leaving behind that kind of problem. He seems to be falling for the hubris of trying to capture the entire world in a grand sort of metaphysical narrative. A theory of everything, yes. It kind of feels to me like he's making a category error. He's actually confusing his project for something it's not. And actually, if he was just to stop and let go of some of that kind of hubris and say, well, actually, maybe I'm not doing that. Maybe I'm making a different kind of practice. Maybe this is actually kind of like a sort of epistemological practice of just trying to understand how a human could start to integrate different fields of knowledge in a very human, knowledge-based attempt to kind of understand the world instead of grafted on to this kind of oneness narrative that we started off with in the critique. Because like I said, the common sense principles of integral are just so clear. Yes. When I look at the critique of someone like Tom Pepper, it's like, yeah, okay, but yes, I agree with you or your critique, but that's not all there is, right? Humans are more complex. There are other things going on. And the people are coming from this perspective, you're coming from that perspective, and therefore you cannot meet. And perhaps you're suggesting that's where an integral or a teaspoon of it might have actually helped some kind of movement forwards in the debate. Yes. Would, would that be fair? That is absolutely fair. Okay. Shall we dive in? Yeah, yeah go ahead. 
All right. And I apologize. I'm going to take a little time to lay a little bit of stuff out, okay? Just to sort of get the basic framework and then we can take it apart. But please dive in anytime and don't hesitate to interrupt if you if you feel inspired to. So I'll just tell you, I will play the devil's advocate, all right? Just to make sure things are clear. Perfect. I, I love it. I, it. It makes for a more interesting and rich conversation. So I'm going to go back to his book, The Spectrum of Consciousness, and it basically lays out sort of seven major bands or modes. It's actually more complicated than anything I'm going to say because it's Ken Wilber, right? So I'm going to simplify it and, and extract from it the nuggets filtered through my interpretation of them that I have found helpful. So this is not straight up unfiltered Wilbur. This is filtered through me and 30 years of thinking about this and trying to apply it in my life. So realize this is, this is a hybrid. Okay, I'm going to start with band three of seven bands. Imagine you have seven different sort of ways or modes of experiencing the world. It actually is more and less than that. It, you don't have to draw these lines exactly, but the framework itself is still helpful. And it's going to sound like a hierarchy when I present it. As we go, you will see why it is very much not. And my thesis and my own exploration of my life has confirmed that I operate routinely in kind of a mix of all of these ways and to various degrees. And they're each areas that have their message, that have their validity, that have their point, and if ignored, can become problematic, even as much as we might not like some of them for various cultural, social, or personal, you know, personal reasons. And so starting with band three, basically, in band three, which is very easy to understand, is called the egoic. Basically, the split here is Freudian, so this is easy to understand. And in this model, we are the ego, trapped between the forces of the superego, which is our sort of internalized parents and rules and ideals of how we should be, and our id, which is our drives of what we want, usually for, you know, sex and violence, he would say, but for all other kinds of things, to consume for satisfaction, to satisfy our chemicals and our brain or whatever. So we are the poor schmo stuck between these two forces. And most of our life is lived in this band, whether we want to admit it or not. Do we go to the fridge again? Do we have another cup of coffee? Do we click that thing that we buy something on some megacorps website? Do we just watch another YouTube video or, you know, or do actual some actual work, right? We're constantly being pulled by our dopamine, by our serotonin, by our oxytocin needs, whatever they are, to get our hits, you know, of fat, of sugar, of, you know, the sense of when we've bought a new tech device or we got a, a like from someone on a social group, right? This is a, a huge portion of our day-to-day -day lives and a substantial amount of our time and decision-making and energy and internal conflict is based in this band. Also, like someone pisses us off, do we like fire back an angry tweet or email or, you know, what do we do? Or do we just sort of shut down because we didn't like something or whatever it is? So our all of these kind of primal drives and psychological reactions are most of our waking life. And so it's easy to forget this band <laughs> when we're lost in intellect or we're lost in other aspects of integral theory. But I'm going to say this is kind of the root for most of us. So that's quite a big uh, claim, and it's quite it a, a familiar story, and it will be familiar to many listeners. I just wonder how true it actually is. And it's fine to say that that's certainly a part of who we are or what we are. And, you know, we could also talk about it in terms of animal nature, right? That's another way it often gets spoken about. Well, it's a mixed nature. We have our sort of, you know, lizard brain, our frontal lobes, our, you know, executive function things, our planning and all that. Mm -hmm. And that's all sort of a part of that in some ways. 
What I'm hearing though in your description is a lot of kind of impulsiveness. Well, no, it's a balance. So, but we have our ideals of how we should be as well. So we have impulsiveness and we have primal drives and we have super ego, which is all our ideals, how we're supposed to be, how we're thought, taught to function, our social conditioning that's meant to sort of counterbalance aspects of biology. But we as an identity in this way of looking at the world, feel like the mediator between these two things. Our primary sense of identification is with the package, but mostly with that central figure that's kind of trying to fight these two aspects, these, these other aspects of ourselves. That's clear. That's more of a complete picture of the, the Freudian model of, of identity and selfhood. Okay, great. Right. So we've got this one. So this is band three, you said. Why are you calling it a band? So these are all like spectrum bands in the spectrum of consciousness is the theme of the book. When you ask me to call it something else, I get into territory I don't like. These are like mm. notes in an octave or colors on a spectrum, right? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, God. You said color. And I, yeah, and I didn't want to do that. But it's only because you're like forcing me out of my band sounds more neutral. We just call it, you know, mode three or something. Okay. Or identity structure three. Okay. Laurelian split category three, just to have a number. <laughs> and you'll see why these numbers are useful as we start talking, because okay. then there's sort of a shorthand that, mm. that makes conversation a lot faster. Okay, okay. Okay. So yeah, mode of being I can get on board with. Sure. Right. Or, or mode. Okay. I'll call mode three. Fine. Moving one way along the spectrum, we get to mode two. And mode two is actually where a lot of the population lives. And particularly if you're in America and you're used to a very religious way of looking at the world, I'm sitting here in Alabama, probably five miles from 30 churches, I would guess, and I'm in the middle of nowhere. Mm. And this is America. So it's a very religious country. But if you go move to mode two, you're going to get to where you externalize the super parent or, or the super ego and you externalize the id and suddenly you're kind of basically caught between God and the devil. You, you've externalized these things. So you've split off a little bit more, right? You're now dealing with a world where it seems like the external forces to be good are not really you and the, the drives are not really you either. So it's like angel on one shoulder, devil on the other, whispering in your ear. They, these are sort of split off. And a substantial portion of history, of world history, thought this way. And a substantial portion of the world still thinks this way. And even people who don't think this way are probably still thinking this way and just don't want to intellectually or culturally admit it. Because mm -hmm. we think we're better than that. We think we're more sophisticated than that. I'll look at some of the other modes we'll get to in a second. And you'll see how they sort of have these conflicts sort of that are intrinsic between them. But I will claim that a lot of us in our heart of hearts really sort of feel like a lot of cultural stuff is external to us. We've internalized it partly, but a lot of it kind of feels artificial. When people sort of react against cultural norms they don't like, or they react against external conditioning, or they react against what the church or the school or the whatever tells them, this is that sort of way. Similarly, they may say, oh, no, my, my you know, corrupting desires are coming from advertising or coming from the chemicals in the food or coming from the thing. It's not really me. It's them. It's that. So we're externalizing both aspects of our sort of super parent or, you know, whatever, and our, our external drives out into the world and saying, those are not me. I'm this thing that's sort of caught between these external forces. And is that the point then where people are signing up to religion because they've projected it out in that way? Right. Uh, so it's a kind of mythological stage, this one. That's absolutely right. It's not okay. just 
like the mythic, that's actually the name of the band. So if, <laughs> if three is egoic, two is actually the mythic. Good job. You must have read some integral theory. Or maybe it's just obvious from the description you're it's giving me. Obvious, right? So they got that one pretty right. So that's not a stretch, right? And then take that out and just explode all of the forces, both good, bad, neutral, and shades of gray mm. into entities. Mm. So this is magic. This is the magic band. We'll call this mode one. Mm -hmm. In mode one, this is, you know, God and Metatron and archangels and angels and seraphim and cherubs and elves and pixies and trolls and, you know, lower astral nasties and, you know, demonic forces and devils and the big bad guy himself or whatever, you know, and, and everything in between. This is ghosts and spirits and ancestors and, you know, astral and, and etheric entities. And this is all of that, right? So this is that band that can go there. Can I just compliment you on saying the phrase, lower astral nasties? <laughs> That's fantastic. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. How is a person experiencing this then? And I don't mean if they're engaged in some kind of ancient shamanic practice or some Western magical uh, expression of some kind. On a day-to-day -day basis, what are we talking about here? Is there some way of recognizing this? Um, there definitely is. And it is true that in a, if you come from a sort of a more intellectual, scientific, materialist culture, you, it, you may feel very alienated by the fact that that mode might even apply to you in any way. It's very, uh, no, I, I don't have a magical aspect in my body. You know, that sort of mentality, right? It's very easy to, from our, you know, if you come from a very secular and rational in theory, um, not actually rational, but anyway, mode of looking at the world, then that seems very alien, very far away. And yet I will claim that the vast majority of those people are extremely susceptible to that sort of imagery, that sort of language, uh, ways of advertising, mythical story. There's a reason that the Harry Potter books are, you know, some of the most popular books and movies ever. And it's, you know, the most, I think, as a series, the most money-making franchise ever, because for better or for worse, we may not like to admit it. We have a deep need for that, resonance for that. The vast majority of human cultures that have ever existed, that is an extremely prominent part of what's going on with them. If you travel to most countries and even go in most, most people's houses, you will see aspects of this mode mm -hmm. of thinking about it, even if it's not the full-on manifestation shamanic level of someone talking with an entity that they see as real, mm -hmm. right? So that mode of experience also exists. One can cultivate that through meditation or sometimes just spontaneous experience or, you know, obviously entheogens, psychedelics, blah, blah. Various ceremonies, rituals can get you to that level of experiencing that band, which is just one level of it or mode. But plenty of us have that mythic resonance. And even if you take very strictly scientific materialistic people and you put them, say, in a pitch black basement in a house that's haunted, you know, on Halloween night or something, there are a few people who are not going to feel some sort of creepy something. Mm -hmm. They were lights out in a basement with like mysterious doors and passageways or down in a mine or something, you know, miles below the ground and where they don't know what things are. And let's say you plead some creepy sounds. Even the most scientific materialistic person is probably going to feel their heart race because there is a part of us, a band of us, a mode of our brains that works that way as much as plenty of intellectuals do not like to acknowledge that. And I would say that the, to the degree to which they will not acknowledge that could possibly be a part of them, to that degree it also has the potential to be something of a shadow side in the Jungian sense. 
That's good. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask, you know, if these are within this theoretical framework a given, as in they are modes we can't, you know, ultimately get rid of, then the question becomes, is it a case then of some kind of psychological repression or denial or something, some such thing? Yeah. And I'm jumping the gun a little bit here, but just because this is coming up, is the idea then in this integral framework that we are integrating these different modes of being? Or is it a case of, because this was one of the, the questions I had more generally speaking about Wilbur's work, is that this kind of what I would assume would be fallacious idea that somehow we're going to progress from one to the next to the next until we get to ever higher states, and somehow we will magically get rid of the lower ones? Yes. And so that is why I'm going to um, give a whole lot of pushback against that ideal. Oh, good. And okay. I can sort of give a summary of my own past. So when I first encountered this stuff, I was like, I was drawn to the other end of the spectrum. I present the, the what might many people think of as the lower end, mm. but I don't think of it as that way. But many people do because it's lower numbers. It seems more primitive. It seems more archaic or flawed in some way. I reacted that way in my 20s and was like, because uh, I was a hyper intellectual guy. I was, you know, studying philosophy and physics and cal calculus. And I was very much in that mode. I hadn't had many spiritual experiences at that point, though a few, but I didn't know what to do with them. And I kind of just blocked them off categorically. I just didn't know how to, you know, make any sense of them. So I just ignored them. So I was very much in that mode initially. So I thought, oh, I've got to get higher and higher and more integrated, more integral, more unitive, more non-dual. Uh -oh. Right. And, <laughs> and, and, right. And, and I, I went that way. And mm. you can do that. And then in, that, in the process of doing that, weirdly enough, more and more of the other stuff started coming up. And I finally realized, OK, I've been an idiot from my point of view. Mm. Like, and maybe I just wasn't ready. It's not like everybody has to take this on all in some sequence. I'm not proposing any sequence. This is going to happen organically for everybody in their own way, in their own order, or sort of, it's really much more of a shot, sort of scattered, you know, erratic development than an order, right? We move up and down these things all the time and, and, they, and they interplay as we'll get to, because we haven't really introduced enough of them to have them talk to each other yet. But Eventually, I found myself like, no, I need to go back and explore some of the magical and mythical aspects of myself. And there I actually found extraordinarily rich, transformative material, kind of like what Jung was talking about. There is richness there, and there is message there, and there is psychology there. And there are primal aspects of the way we interact with the world there that are very bound up in a magical and mythical structure. Mm -hmm. And if you can't go there, then you can't access that and sort of bring light to that on those things terms. And the problem is those things are still very powerful. Yeah. As advertisers know, as storytellers know, they have a lot of oomph. I'd agree with all that. And I think that all sounds good. Are you, in your own experience then, uh, continuing on with the idea that these bands or these modes are quite distinct and separate and that you would move in and out of one and into another? No, All right. not really. As we'll get to, they become these interactive things and they are, they're all sort of operating all the time. And we'll, we'll get to the interactivity when we have more of them to play with each other. Okay, okay. but you, as you rightly said, these are three supposedly, according to Wilbur, lower level states. He doesn't call them lower level, but a lot of people think of them as lower level. Well, okay. actually, okay. I must say the Wilburians are sort of uh, of, t of two minds on this. Mm. Um, and you see both. So you, you definitely see like some sentences which are explicitly, these are not a hierarchy. These are all things to integrate and explore. And then you will see other paragraphs that say the exact opposite. So to be fair, 
in some ways they're both right, but in other ways they're really not. And I'm much more at this point in my life, a give them all their due type of a person rather than a just go for more and more integral and ignore the rest type of person. Yeah, and that's okay. I mean, I'm quite happy to sit with certain kinds of paradoxes that would make other people uncomfortable. But yeah, I just wanted to be clear about whether the idea, at least according to Wilbur and co, was that they all eventually get folded into this absolute unitary, well, childish (laughs) idea of eternal monism, you know, which is... uh, We'll get critique, there. yeah. And I know, I know. I'm just making sure you're anticipating actually band six, really, which is that right. mode or mode six, which is what you're talking about. Okay, okay. All right, okay. So let's go to four, right? Is that next? So four is the existential. And in the existential, mm. so if if the split before, if mode one is the split between all these entities and mode two is sort of God, you devil, or whatever, you know, it's, mm-hmm. um, it could be lots of different names for that, but that's sort of the basic mode external uh, you know parent and drives and you in the middle and egoic is those kind of as a package they're within you but you're still kind of identified with the mediator between these two things neither of which you really like uh, most of the time and then you get to the existential and the existential is that the supremacy of the mind and the intellect and reason and rationality mm. this is the mind split off from the body and the rest of the world in its pure form as sort of an almost like a platonic ideal and a platonic ideal is very much the kind of thing that the existential would come up with and the problem with that is that it's incredibly self-reinforcing the existential truly believes it's got the download right it thinks it is the one it's figured this out it's the supreme arbiter of truth and from an intellectual point of view it's hard to argue against it sort of we'll get there Right. It seems so true. And to even come up with a theory like this involves a lot of its power. It also involves some of band five, as we talk about in a minute. It it seems so right. It seems so flawless within its scope and its fear. It seems pristine. It seems unarguable. The cold, hard logic of math and, you know, the, the equations of physics have an elegance uh, like that's that's more compelling to some people than the sense of divinity. And in fact, um, you know, seems unassailable. And yet the problem with the intellect, as we all know, is A, it's cut off from the heart and B, it can be staggeringly cut off from reality testing, right? It's annoyed by the fact that it actually needs the rest of reality to validate itself. Because of the arbitrary nature of the sign and the arbitrary nature of designation and the arbitrary nature of sort of Laruelian decision-making, how you slice reality intellectually, because of that, it can do anything, both good and bad. It can come up with any sort of crazy, any sort of brilliance, any sort of reductionistic bullshit, any sort of seemingly unassailable truth, like, you know, Maxwell's equations or whatever, that seem like, no, Maxwell's equations are just true. You can say things like that. And Okay, so within the realm of the existential, yeah, you can't you can't argue with that kind of logic, sort of. Except taken far enough, it comes to these really uncomfortable places because weirdly enough, it actually has the power to debunk itself. And it comes to things like Gödel's incompleteness theorem, that a system that has more than one element you can't understand within the confines of the set, you know, I'm summarizing. But And it comes to things like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Even though you can sort of know all these things, you can't actually know all these things. And the intellectual, you know, the sort of existential gets there and goes, ah, 
ah, well, maybe I should just kill myself. And then it comes up with stuff like that. So Laura Well, for example, or um, Jean-Paul Sartre, very much appreciated sort of the power and also the tyranny of what I'll call the existential hot seat. Because the rational mind is at once unbelievably compelling and also kind of toxic sometimes. If, if you've had the, the joy of watching recent political discussions about various leaders and topics, you'll realize that someone can approach the exact same data or similar data and come to mind-bogglingly different, seemingly high, highly justifiable conclusions. And you can watch the power of the mind to reframe and rebrand and re-spin anything and it seems arbitrary in its capacity to do so. And that's part of its glory and charm and pathology. Mm. But the problem is a lot of the SNB kids, and I, sorry about this. You can't help but keep going back to them, can you? <laughs> I cannot help it. I apologize. So it's sort of like a tool rather than it's I think it's better as a tool than an identity. Um, and it's good to understand how it fits into the broader framework. So what comes next? We get to the fifth one, which is called the yogi or the centaur. And this is where the mind-body system are integrated, heart-mind-body, and the split is between you and the world. So this is my heart-mind-body. What I eat affects my thought. What I think affects my gut. My immune system is mediated by my emotions. You know, I can be intuitive in my heart and I can relate to things in this way that is in some ways more integral, which sounds like an upgrade to the existential in some ways. And in some ways it is. And in some ways it can be just as problematic. This is simultaneously an improvement. It adds some functionality. It adds some connectivity. It adds some very important things. But it can also, because the split is now between you and the world, become incredibly narcissistic. Like, so this is like my pristine body that I will only put in the like, you know, the sort of alkaline water that came from this spring <laughs> that I had shipped to me, you know, at a staggering mm -hmm. cost to the environment because I don't care. And I'm going to use my, you know, expensive clothing that was like made in a factory and I don't care, like, you know, by slave children or something. And like, this is the sort of narcissism that you find in plenty of yoga communities and meditation communities and you know it, you know that feel and flavor, and it's simultaneously amazing. They really are actually getting out of their heads and helping their bodies, and they generally do look and feel healthier in some way. And they can talk about their heart and how their, you know, their heart center is this, and they can do all that, which is so needed, like against the dryness and the cutting sharp arbitrariness of the intellectual, right? So it's a serious upgrade. And yet, because it has the split between me, which is this mind-body system, and the rest of the world, it can also have this incredible narcissism. And so both are true, right? So again, it's like one of these things that's not sort of black or white or better or worse necessarily. It's just a different mode. And it contains within it vision logic. It contains meta logic because it can see the intellect and the mind as just one part of a broader system. It actually has the capacity to critique the intellectual in exactly the way you did when you started out by saying, you know, it feels dry. It feels heartless. Like, where is that? Well, that's a that's a mode five critique of mode four. Right. And it's that's mm. one of the advantages of it. Like, that's so important. And yet it can also be so problematic as anybody who's hang out, hung out in these cultures instantly, hopefully will see. Okay, so you engage with this stuff, right? And where did you find yourself after your initial exploration of those, well, well, let's get them by their proper name, stage one, two, and three? 
did you start to find yourself operating at the level you've just described, which had a very strange name? Can you remind me of that? Centaur Yogi or something? Yogi or Centaur, or we could just call it Mode 5. Did you find yourself then progressing into that stage? And how did you deal with that? Because presumably as a map of some sort, this has behind it the intention to help people not get stuck in these different stages, right? Or not? that's well not it's not to not get stuck in them it's to appreciate them to explore them and to come to some better understanding of what they are and what they aren't both their strengths and their problems and how they can play well with the other bands which of our experience and our other paradigms which may seem to contradict them mm-hmm. so okay. yeah so it's more like can these can these kids all play together well because they're all actually in the classroom if that may, you know to use an analogy and can they all can they all grow as what they are? Yeah, that's quite a tall order, though, isn't it? I mean, we've already got what five so far, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I think this might be part of the answer to why this kind of project lends itself to people getting into hierarchical thinking immediately, because sure. most people don't have the bandwidth to be able to contain so much, right? Because partly this is an exercise in imagination. Except they do. They have yeah. all these bands operating, but they have all these bands operating within them, and it's mm. just kind of giving them their due and recognizing. Yeah, but presumably some people find it would find it almost impossible to access some of these. That is true. And so some of them are much more alienating to people than others, and most of us, through our culture, through our predilections or genetics, or I don't know, we, we find ourselves more resonant and more versed in certain bands. And we all know people like this, right? We know sort of mm-hmm. yogic people. We know hyper-intellectual people. We know sort of, you know, very sort of Freudian drivish versus super ego, egoic people. And those are the easier ones to relate to, mm. right? Clearly, m- the culture you and I are coming from is sort of more band four edging into band five with a little bit of band six, as we'll get to, with obviously plenty of band three. But bands one and two and six and seven are going to seem farther out of our comfort zone, right? On average, most people who are listening to this are probably going to be kind of like mm. that. Mm. Right. So that's okay. But just even knowing these are other places that can be developed and that there might be defined, straightforward ways to develop them is helpful. And like doing yoga, like, you know, thinking about how my diet has affected my body, like all of these things have helped me. I've learned things about this system and how to take care of it that I I didn't know before. And so I'm very, very grateful to sort of yogic paradigms. And Mm -hmm. when I encountered them in medicine, like it feels better. Medicine that isn't just hyper intellectual and has sort of mind, body, heart way to it feels better. People like that. You know, mode five offers something of real value despite its problems. You know, none of these are perfect and we kind of need all of them as you'll see, I think. So moving into mode six, mode six is now you remove the boundary between yourself and the world. And then it's just sort of unitive thinking, right? This is grand systems thinking. This is Gaia hypothesis. This is carbon cycle. This is, we are nutrients as part of a biosphere that are circulating around, interacting with an environment. This goes to that level. This thinks about how the planet is, how the ecosystem is, how the society is. Each of these can have sort of have sub modes within them. Like, how's my family? How's my tribe? How's my city? How's my state? How's my nation? How's my broader you know, international community? How's the health of the globe? And so this one needs some kind of nuance. This is thinking of the whole thing as a system. And this is very actually, you know, mechanical physics in some ways, right? This is all just a Newtonian integrated system without actual boundaries that is unfolding according to natural laws. At this point, this is 
quantum wave theory in some ways, right? That sounds very band four, but it also is thinking in sort of a very band six way that particles can be entangled across galaxies and universes. And this whole thing is just sort of an unfolding grand mechanical or mysterious or quantum, whatever you think that is, design um, of biological and chemical and, you know, processes of molecules moving around where the dust of dead stars, etc. That way of thinking about the environment, about society, about the planet, about the world is another band that draws the line in a very different place that is very useful. Hello, it's me again. And yes, I know it's rather rude to interrupt this lovely conversation that you've given up your time to listen to, but I kind of have to. You may have noticed the traditional introduction for the podcast was missing today. That's because I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. You may also have noticed I wasn't plugging my coaching business either. Now, that's very bad of me. And in fact, I'm not a very good capitalist. It just seems to me that trying to get people to pay money for things is really the wrong approach. People should choose to do so and be free to do so as well. Now, I've got a new website. If you follow the Facebook page or Twitter feed, you probably know about that. Now, I do have a coaching business and I have mentioned it before. I see it really as a as needed come along. I have a regular job teaching, which some of you may know. And that allows me to do things like this podcast and the coaching and the workshops I do as well in a way that's not really dependent on people coughing up cash. It also means that those poor students who don't have a dime to rub together or, well, those people who are living on benefits or whatnot or the increasing number of people on zero contract hours and that kind of nefarious business arrangement can actually come along and get some insight, some teaching, or whatever they need. So Coaching O'Connell is now integrated into the site. You can have a look at what I do if you're interested. If you think about the themes I'm covering in this podcast, those are the kinds of things I tend to help people along with. And since this is the practice season, I should mention that I'm not a Buddhist teacher, wouldn't claim to be one as such, but I do use Buddhist materials, including meditation. So if you're looking for somebody to work with that kind of stuff, to find a practicing life that you can use to go forwards, that doesn't require you to give up your intellect, give up your autonomy, and start slipping back into some of the the fantasies and dysfunctional characteristics of contemporary spirituality and Buddhism that we've addressed on this podcast, you might want to get in touch. I tend to draw on post-traditional, non-Buddhist style approaches, But if you would like to review what it means to even conceptualize something like meditation or practice or compassion or awakening in a context in which we can be critical together and explore very much in a 21st century set of lenses, then that's the kind of thing I'm up to. And if you're interested, take a look at the website. Could we could we also think about these as like selves or states of uh, awareness or like uh, self-awareness in, in, you know, in the sense that we're actually conscious of being within these spaces? Yes. And so each of these can be developed yeah. from sort of an intellectual appreciation of them or sort of an intuition about them to mm. a living experience that seems much more boundary dissolved plenty of people, particularly on psychedelics or sometimes just in beautiful moving experiences or other through other processes, will all of a sudden have a sense of their boundaries dissolving, have a sense of greater connection to nature, 
to mm-hmm. an I to something, right? To the planet, to a family, this to a, a, a movement. So this is much more collective thinking and collective ways of experiencing oneself and being. If you've ever seen like a whole crowd that suddenly gets swept up in a moment, we really like this, or a whole concert where the whole place is jumping up and down and singing together some song they all know, right? There's something at once delightful in some of these experiences. And we actually go out of our way to become part of a greater collective, right? To lose ourselves in something bigger than ourselves. This can mm-hmm. be very compelling and extremely powerful and also unbelievably dangerous. Yes, yes. This is also the kind of thinking that says, well, the planet can support, you know, between 500 million and 2 billion people. We need to have, you know, 6.5 to 4 billion less or something, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that kind of thinking, which is very sort of, you know, Bilderbergian if you want to be paranoid about it, and maybe true. Like, I, I, it's not like I'm necessarily arguing with that point of view, you know, or nature's going to do what it does. If the planet warms, the planet's going to warm. If the you know, that that's sort of thinking and the system will change as it does. And what does that have to do with us, really? So this is also that band of thinking, right? Because it's it's broad, impersonal systems. So it sounds like you're you're intimating that there's a dark side, in a sense, to to each of these, even what I would have originally thought of as higher bands. Right. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah, this yeah, is just so. Mother Nature is going to do what we are. We're just chemicals that are going to be recycled in the carbon cycle. The planetary system is going to change whenever it does, however it does. The carbon emission is as much a part of nature as anything. That's that kind of thinking right, as right. well. So, yeah. So there's a degree of sort of excessive depersonalization here. Right, because there's the boundary between self and other is dissolved yeah, to yeah. some degree or to total degree. And so yeah. this is that band of big systems thinking. And it's an important band that a lot of us go to, but then we we actually operate on it from a lot of like band two, band three, band four ways, right? So we take this big system paradigm, which seems very integral, but most of it are most of the time operating it from secret self-need, need to protect ourselves, our interests, maybe a few family members, our tribe. So most of the operation on band six, if you look at it politically, is actually very band two, three, four, or like band two looks at band six and goes, I live in a place where it's very common to think these are end times. This is all God's plan. If you look in the Bible, this is all the way it's unfolding. This is the grand design. We're going to go up to heaven. We don't have to take care of the environment. We can have our SUVs because mm-hmm. we're, we're going to be fine from the, you know, the grand God, God plan or whatever. Or this is all the work of demonic forces, right? So I also listen to podcasts like Room Soup, which make their interesting point about this is like, you know, the archaeology, the study of demonic forces flowing through the planet and the system. Like, you know, and you, they sort of view the world is this sort of grand battle between light and darkness, which is a very sort of band one way of looking at band six, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it quickly gets complicated when you see how they relate to each other in the way you're describing, but it's uh, not just a state of consciousness, then it's a kind of... Uh, it's a paradigm. Yeah, it's a paradigm. That's a good word. Yeah. Okay. It's a whole package of basically where you draw the line at a lot of different levels. Um, and so then we get to band seven. And band seven, of course, is what most people think is like the cat's meow in at least the circles I run in, right? So band seven <laughs> is true non-duality, that you don't even have a stable unitive system anymore. This is emptiness. This is transience. This is, it's all just impersonal, transient, ephemeral, non-dual experiences unfolding and vanishing, unfolding and vanishing. 
in a way that is not even a stable unitive structure, right? It doesn't even have that. This is true non-duality, true ephemerality, true emptiness. And you could call it true self as long as you don't go to the stability of a true self, right? And that's where they sort of mix. That's that sort of edgy band six, seven fusion. We're kind of in between the two. You get the sort of stable all ground of luminous being or whatever, which is really kind of not one or the other. It's kind of a mix of them. And that's where you get this tension, right? So because it's kind of a mix of unity and true non-duality. Everybody thinks, oh, if I just get, get that, which is doable, you can actually do this. If you practice well enough to notice experience, experience can become, can show this aspect to you by degrees and eventually become a living thing that you have all the time. And there is just experience unfolding in which occur thoughts as part of an integrated transient experience in which occur feelings, in which occur, you know, demons, in which occur political discussions, in which occur intellectual designations, in which occur primal drives from a certain point of view. But from another point of view, it is literally just unfolding, vanishing experience, vanishing experience. And that's that. But the thing is, and most a lot of the circles I run in, people think, well, if you get that, then you're good to go. You don't need, you know, to notice your deep shadow sides. You don't need to necessarily deal with your primal drives. You don't necessarily need to deal with the tyranny of your reductionistic intellect. You don't necessarily need to deal with the narcissism of the way you think about your integrated mind-body system. You don't even need uh -oh. to think about, like, the integrated system of the planet and what we're doing with the carbon cycle or whatever. You mm. just need to get non-dual. And I see that one a lot, too, which is also crazy. It just does not work. It's a bloody stupid idea. It is. It is really <laughs> fuck nuts. Okay, like, like, <laughs> and I can't believe it's still bloody around. Like, you know, we've got to the point where it's so obviously highly dysfunctional, right? And people are still chasing after that shit. Yes. Well, hold on. This uh, is actually a sorry. doable thing. So, so you have to remember who you're talking to. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you are talking to a person who claims to have actually integrated that as a living, unassailable paradigm. As my oh, right, functional yes. baseline. That, that, that's, that's the label, yeah, great. Right, so that's the label I give myself for those in the audience. I call myself an arhat and shit, right? So like, okay, but I can tell you, having done this thing to, I think, literally as far a degree as you can take it, it did not solve all the other bands. Does it yeah, add yeah. something of a perspective to all of them? Yes, just like all of them add a perspective to all of them, mm -mm, right? Mm -mm. Was it useful? Yes. Am I thankful mm -mm. I did it? Yes. Do I think it can be done by other people? Definitely. Other people taught it to me. I've taught it to other people, right? This is a doable thing. You can actually do the experiment. And if you pay enough attention to clear sense at reality, you can do this thing to various degrees and it unfolds in stages, whatever. Okay, fine. Um, and you can have glimpses of it. Cool. And then they fade, but it, but it's informative. And just like all the other bands, it does something to them, but it doesn't transform all of it. And so no. the notion that you could just go all non-dual and that's it is truly fucking dangerous. And you see this in the scandal sheets, you see this in the crazy of gurus, and even if maybe some of them have done some of this or a lot of this, the notion that that illuminates all the other bands, gonna solve all the other problems and give you all the other answers, transience and immediacy of experience do not give you intellectual answers it doesn't give you even a, a good mind body appreciation in that kind of way like of how to you know eat good foods mm -hmm. that make your mind better mm -hmm. think good thoughts to make your gut better or whatever it doesn't necessarily give you that it doesn't necessarily do all your shadow work for you it doesn't solve your primal drives 
Does it give you a perspective on all of them just like they all do? Yes. But is it enough or the cat's meow or all you need to do? Fucking no. All right, good. Uh, two things come to mind, and one of them is a response from the SNB to that. <laughs> and you brought them up, uh, so I'm just <laughs> carrying on. Yeah. But one of the one of the responses to to one of their articles, which I kind of know the answer to anyway, and you you kind of hinted at it too, but I think it's quite a nice sort of antidote to some of this uh, romantic obsession with a final release into whatever it is that people imagine is going to be the case if they do these practices. They had a, a, an article entitled one, So What? with a question mark, which is, okay, you've got to that state, you believe all that stuff's going to happen, you're awake, well, so what? The next point that came from another person that was critiquing Wilbur, he was talking about the juxtaposition between, you know, this kind of merging or this unitive state of consciousness where you make a, a, a meaningful break, let's say, with the ego, whatever, whatever story you want to tell yourself sure. about it. And he was talking about the fact that, you know, Wilbur does tend to place as the pinnacle of humanity figures like Zen patriarchs, Krishnamurti, and Ramana Maharasha. And he says, yeah, well, one of the problems here is that he's placing them above all of our creative geniuses from history, from Shakespeare to everybody else. And he says, one of the problems with these chaps is that what happens? Well, you could define many of them as being highly lethargic, apathetic, asocially quietistic. True. and making absolutely no no contribution to wider society. Right, because they fetishize those higher bands. I, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you and I agree on this. I'd like to be generous in my reading of people. I think there's space for all of this. And and perhaps, you know, the, the antidote, obviously, it should, be, it should be clear already, it seems to be implicit to what at least you're saying so far, is that by not placing these on a hierarchy, they sort of become a kind of ecology of modes. Yes. And that each, as you seem to have hinted at, could potentially provide a bit of balance and perspective on all the others. Yes. And to me, that's like, well, hey, that's the kind of direction I guess we ought to be heading in. It's certainly in at least in a 21st century perspective. So why is it that that kind of message is sometimes lost, you think, in the work of Wilbur? Why do we, why do we still end up with so many people falling for the fallacy that you've nicely described, which is, this, oh, if I only just get to that state, finally, I'll be free. What, what, what do you think it is that's still maintaining that when we still see these scandals and all the failings of these so-called enlightened teachers? Wow, because we all want the fantasy. And so the weird thing is, we're actually coming from a very not well-appreciated band one or two or three way of approaching bands five, six, seven. So it's a kind of desire thing. We have a very mythical and magical way of thinking about those higher bands. The problem is, as mostly band three, four cultural society resonance people, right? That's most of our society is very band three, four. And if you're more in the South, it's a little more band two. And if you're more in California, it's a little more band five. But most of us, even if we don't like to admit it, have a super mythical, magical way of thinking about band six and seven where these people are like God, or we will become like God, or they're like angels. People who don't like that are like demons or something, right? Even if we're trying to pretend that those bands are not operating, we take those bands, which we've become big shadow sides, and naively apply them to these other bands. And this is something that sort of Wilbur addresses in what he calls, oh golly, why am I having a brain glitch? um, Pre-trans something or other. Pre-trans, thank you, fallacy. Right, okay. And the pre-trans fallacy both of these things are irrational, and so we think about them as if they're the same. Okay. And we ignore the fact that we might be thinking irrationally from bands one and two about bands five, six, seven. 
right? We sort of mix these things up. It is true that unitive experiences are sometimes rare, sometimes hard to get, you know, powerful unitive experiences. Non-duality is not necessarily the easiest thing to cultivate as a direct living experience, though it's doable, right? For me, at least, it literally took thousands and thousands and thousands of hours and, you know, a lot of retreat time and blah, blah. It was a project, right? It was like, you know, not as hard as getting an MD and a residency, but it was close to that. It was a lot of work to even get a sense of what these things were. And before that, just like everybody else, I thought about them very mythically, magically, right? Because that's all I had. Mm, mm. And we get a lot of mythical, magical thinking from culture, from the traditions, from, you know, the way these things are advertised. Mythical, magical thinking sells incredibly well, as the Mm -hmm. advertisers and story writers all know. Just the fact of impermanent transient sensations doesn't sell, right? That doesn't sell. That doesn't sound that interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Really impermanent transient sensations that aren't me? Mm-hmm. How does that sell? So nearly all spiritual traditions then go back to band one, two advertising to a- appeal to our band three id, you know, and our band three super ego of, you know, of our ideals of how this thing should be, and then sort of wrap that in some very flowery, arbitrary nature of the sign band four rhetoric that can do anything it wants and doesn't really care if it's right or wrong mm. <laughs> from a certain arbitrary point of view. And then that's that's what we approach bands five, six, and seven with, mm. right? That's just the nature of the thing. You see a tremendous amount of that when you start looking at the spiritual marketplace, at spiritual advertising, at communities, at traditions, at celebrations and ceremonies, and the language people use for this, you're going to find a ton of that. Now you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's what they're doing. And Mm -hmm. so it helped me to disentangle a lot of this thinking and a lot of spiritual questions and spiritual advertising once I started getting an appreciation of what each of the modes were, that all of these were operating within myself to various degrees. And if I didn't understand them well, then I was just going to get blindsided by them. Yeah, that's a nice way of summarizing that whole thing. That, that, that's great. And it makes me think as well about this question of um, maturation and adult development and the fact that it obviously takes time in order to come to know these states or these modes of being and come to even understand what it would mean for you to both know them within yourself, but also find some way of building and creating relationships between them. And obviously, that's going to be very difficult if you're situated within a tradition in which one of these states is operating forcefully as the kind of, uh, I don't know, the be-all and end-all of the project of that specific group, right? And it makes me think of uh, Bikram Chowdhury. I don't know if you saw the um, documentary that came out very recently about him, the hot yoga yes. guy. Yeah. Oh, So recommended. Oh, my very golly. Good. Yeah. Interesting, right? Oh. <laughs> Yep. And he seems to be um, falling basically for, well, pretty much everything you've just described. I like two things. I don't know what you thought about it. And I I don't want to get off topic because I think it's related. But I found two things interesting. One is how his wife seemed to be justifying it all. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because she was getting the Rolex and the, the Mercedes and all that. And just how nasty he became when the world didn't sort of uh, fit round his fantasies about who he was and what he was doing anymore. And the other thing as well, I mean, this is, this is the, the ongoing issue, I think, is that you can recognize, and maybe you can recognize it too, both in him, but also in like the, the, uh, the, the series on Netflix about Osho, that there's this kind of um, conundrum. Yeah, wild, wild country. Yeah, that's the one. Thank you. There's this conundrum whereby insiders will always claim, you know, God, it was powerful. It changed my life and da, 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 da. And you're kind of sympathetic towards that because you know it did. But at the same time, there's a, a, a form of immense delusion and, and sort of um, bullshit going on in which these people have to deny a huge slice of reality in order to remain hiding out. Well, I guess at this point in one of these states or modes that you've been describing. 
Yes, absolutely. So I was actually on retreat this summer with a person who was there for seven years with Osho in the ashram in India, one of the first hundred mm. people there in the ashram. And so there to see this whole thing unfold. And he would tell all these amazing stories about what it was like, both powerful and mm. horrifying and like, ugh. and it was all that apparently. So, yeah, and but eventually he thought, oh, no, 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 okay, I, I just need to move on. This is this this gave me something, gave me some useful things, and now I've, this is not doing it for mm. me anymore. And we were just, curiously enough, on a retreat where we were both exploring sort of stage of insight, bare sensate reality stuff, and also very deep mythical magical stuff. So we're doing fire mm. casino. And we were trying to fill out some of the, you know, those bands in terms of development still. And this is someone who has been doing this for now, you know, 40 something years since I was a little kid and still finding that practice is useful, that there's more to develop, that there's more to explore. And I'm finding the same thing. So I've been doing this now for, you know, how long have I been dealing, you know, thinking about philosophy and dealing with spiritual stuff, you know, mm -hmm. decades and I still don't find ends to these things. I still think there's lots for me to develop in interpersonal relationships, in communication, in the way I think about politics, in the way I relate to my own primal, primal drives, in what I put on my mouth, and how much I exercise and listen to my body, and how I deal with deep shadow stuff, and, and the stuff that comes up in dreams, and the stuff that comes up in more magical experiences, mm -hmm. as well as how these relate to the bigger picture and society and the world and mm -hmm. the biosphere. I don't have anything like the answers, but I continue to attempt to think about all those kinds of modes. And at least this framework has helped me to recognize something about that work and what might be valuable about it. Yeah, that's clear. A couple of questions come to mind. Um, let's go for this one first of all. In your uh, application and experimentation and exploration of this map, and we know you like maps, do you, or rather should I say, have you come across things that you think need to be added? Are there any kind of extra bands or divisions of one of those bands or more that you think would be worth highlighting or that you found important in your exploration? Well, I just very much don't think of it necessarily as the be-all and end-all mm. of systems. So I also think about the world through so many other lenses. But at least when I think about it through those lenses, the fact that I can think about where I've sliced things or where I've made the division, that even that meta paradigm on this slicing system has helped me. So it's helped me to think about when I think about political parties or when I think about political rhetoric, which bands are they operating out of or do those even mm. apply? Sometimes I go, ah, no, like maybe that's not a helpful theory. Uh, but I think it has improved my ability to appreciate the conceptual frameworks I use and appreciate when they're useful and not useful. So that's sort of the meta paradigm on it. And I don't always think about everything through this system by any means, right? So like when I would sometimes be doing like work with patients who are struggling with addiction in the emergency department. I might use much more of like a stages of change model. Or when I'm thinking about how people are grieving things, I go sort of Elizabeth Kubler-Rossian. Or when I'm thinking about people's conflicts between wanting to spend more time working on their own projects or helping out their kids or family or society, I suddenly am going Ericksonian. And, and so just the sort of the the way of picking frameworks, seeing if they fit, discarding them when they don't, 
has that sort of ability is something that I learned through doing some Mm -hmm. integral work. And so that's more interesting, I think, than taking this system and slicing its bends differently. You kind of can't talk about Ken Wilber without talking about quadrants. (laughs) Before you go there, I I got two things to say. So I was thinking about like the world of work or a service orientated perspective on this map. And many people struggle with the idea of what, what should be done, right? What should we do? This ethical question. It seems to me that this is actually quite an interesting map as well to use as a reflection on where a person may dedicate part of their life in terms of service. Because if, as you believe, as uh, it seems obvious that you do, and, and I strongly believe so as well, that we live in complex times and we need maps that allow us to navigate complexity and not be seduced by the simplicity. And in this case, that would mean the simplicity of attaching our sense of identity to one or two of those bands. Then a way of approaching that would also be understanding that we we can't all, or we don't all have the mental capacity to nimbly switch between them all and master them. They could be seen as two in two ways. One is a reminder, as you've been describing, that if we don't pay attention to the complexities of our experience of being in the world and the kind of fact that we are naturally either slipping into, gravitating towards, or avoiding some of these bands. So that would be the first step. We need to become conscious of them and integrate them to some degree or come to know them. But in a service sense, I think if somebody had some sort of um, decent degree of stability and their capacity to be aware of them and navigate them to some degree effectively each one could offer an opportunity for where to be in service. So you could be in service to dealing with all that magical stuff, right? You could be in service to working effectively with, you know, fundamentalist religion in trying to help liberate that kind of paradigm. I don't know if that's a way we could talk about it too. You could also obviously be, end up being, you know, an Osho or somebody who sits around all day and invites people into that level seven state too. But that would be my kind of functional approach would be, well, perhaps we could employ more people, kind of like, uh, I don't know, like integral soldiers that would go out there and, and attempt to at the collective level to kind of break open some of the, the stuckness of each of these bands and how they manifest in society at large. That's a bit of utopian thinking. What, what do you think about all that before we move on to this quadrant stuff? Well, I think luckily the ecosystem needs a lot of different types of entities working at a lot of different levels. The number of levels at which we can each work is relatively mm. limited. We're a very small part of the big system, Yeah. right? Uh, but the concepts themselves luckily can be vastly bigger than us. And I think the sort of con- the concepts and the memes and some of the language and the frameworks can definitely help unstick systems, can definitely help them relate to themselves better, can definitely help them critique themselves from points of view that are external to them, and can definitely lend some mental flexibility. I think all of that is true, definitely. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So quadrants, are we going towards dangerous territory? I mean, is a quadrant just really a square of some kind? What is it? I'm, I'm going to look on page 97 of the Integral Vision, a sh- very short introduction by Ken Wilber. And I'm just going to talk about one of these sets of various things you could put in various quadrants. Well, hold on, hold on. What's, what is a quadrant? Are you going to define that for us? There is something called AQAL, or I think that's how you pronounce it, AQAL. And it talks about sort of various quadrants and ways you can look at things. And it'll all become obvious when I just sort of read off this little thing I'm about to read. Okay, okay. Right. So if you have four quadrants, and one of them is basically about I, and one of them is mm-hmm. about we, so this mm-hmm. is our 
personal me and per and then personal but collective and then mm-hmm. it and its which is basically objective singular and object, objective plural so if you have these sorts of four ways of looking at reality in one quadrant um, on this little table figure 16 um, it deals with something called quadrant absolutism and one way of looking at the world that's sort of an extreme ideal is that the mind is reality and this is extreme idealism right this is sort of solipsism this is uh, that kind of thing it can be very narcissistic but also very compelling um, another way of the left lower quadrant is we. This is extreme postmodernism. And this is that culturally constructed meaning is reality. And this is extreme de- you know, post-deconstructionism or postmodernism. The only truth is what society says it is. Then that is the only actual reality, which has um, gotten some traction, though thankfully some pushback in intellectual circles for the last number of decades. Mm, and we talked about that a little bit, didn't we, last time, I think. We did. And then you can have extreme scientism up in the upper right it uh, quadrant that matter is reality. This is extreme scientific materialism, that that is the only reality. And then you can have extreme systems theory, which is the web of life is the only reality. As one critiques or looks at intellectual arguments, particularly some of the more extreme ones, it's very common to actually see these points of view. So as I look at various intellectual websites who are discussing spirituality or politics or philosophy, it is very common for people to sort of gravitate towards one of these quadrants, that everything is mind or everything is just what society says it is, or everything is just unfolding matter, or everything is just this great connected web of things. All of those points of view can be useful sometimes, but can be really toxic other times. And so I am very much a paradigmatic pragmatist. I like looking at my paradigms and thinking, oh, yeah, but do they help? Right? Does it mm-hmm. help to think of everything as socially constructed? And in what days, ways does that harm? Like what, mm-hmm. what projects and endeavors is that useful for? And which ones are it toxic for? Because a lot of people will sort of adopt a paradigm such as pragmatism in this case, but it's hard not to argue for pragmatism, though it can get out of hand as well. Once they've you know, sort of got their default filter, they look at everything through that filter, even if it's not a helpful filter. And mm. so we all fall into this habit sometimes, myself included, but at least I try when I can to think, okay, is this framework actually helpful for the question? Or is this a habitual framework I'm comfortable with that really isn't that good a fit and actually impairs in some ways my ability to do something useful? And so that's Mm. the last thing I wanted to add from Wilbur. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, I'd say um, we actually touched on this theme in one of our previous conversations. And I I think, first of all, it's good that you reiterated it. And secondly, I agree with you. And I think that's a very mature view. And it's not just pragmatist. I think actually it shows some kind of uh, care or commitment to the world that's in line with, on a good day, what, what Buddhism you know, proposes we do, right? Which is do our best to commit to sharing in the burden of reducing ignorance and suffering in the world. And that, that simple question of, is this helpful in this given moment or in this given context, is often forgotten or discarded in the name of truth or righteousness and all the rest of it, as you, as you well know. So um, I second that, and I think this is one of the things that you and I definitely agree on. I think this quadrant, again, I mean, just the word quadrant annoys me slightly, but you, you seem to be talking about perspectives now, or stances, or positions. Yes. And I think, 
using those words, I, I, I'm quite comfortable with that myself. And I think that's a really, really useful practice. And I think that's a practice that, if I'm not mistaken, um, some folks are experimenting with in terms of the noting practice that you're very familiar with. And two of those people, I think, are people you've mentioned, Kenneth Folk and Vince Horn. So before we talk a little bit more about the theory, have you tried that kind of thing too? And have you found it useful within the, the meditative or contemplative practice context to do that kind of shifting between quadrants? So are you talking about like social noting, that, that kind of thing? I think that's is- the name, if I've understood it correctly. Yeah. Isn't that kind of a shift from I to we, or have I got it wrong? Um, in some ways, it certainly is. I, I'm slightly quirky in that I don't actually like social noting, although I, oh, okay. I weirdly enough, and but this is for me. Now, I, lots of people find it incredibly useful, and I do not want to disparage it as a te- technique generally. Mm. My own problem with it is that having spent a lot of time in my practice actually looking at primal drives and aspects of ourselves that we're generally not comfortable with Mm -hmm. and taking that as a very uh, intense uh, exploration, it makes it now so that it's hard to not notice that the aspects of myself that are very lizard-like, that are very primal, Mm -hmm. that are very socially unacceptable – Mm-hmm. that if one shared them in these kinds of contexts would rapidly make people very nervous, mm-hmm. I think. And it's like authentic relating. So there, I have a lot of friends who really like to do what they call authentic relating practice. And they'll sit there and, and they'll just say what they're experiencing and what they're feeling in these ways that are at once very heartfelt and very beautiful and a level of intimate often explanation of emotion and desire and things that often we wouldn't share. And that kind of practice can cause a lot of intimacy and honesty. And mm. and if one is well listened to, one can feel, feel very understood and understandably so. Mm. And yet, I always feel very uncomfortable in those situations because they do have a decorum to them all their own. Mm. They do have a level below which you actually don't go. Um, they, they generally, if they're, if you go to a level below that, most people, even if they're trying to authentically relate and hold a space for you, will actually start to become uncomfortable, which can make Mm -hmm. the dynamic very strained. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. if one is sufficiently in touch with the primal aspects of ourself or of oneself that society often wants us, you know, we suppress, we ignore, we try to pretend aren't there in both social noting and authentic relating, I often thought this is not actually really that honest. What I'm presenting to them is usually pre-filtered mm. and it's buying into another seemingly to me inauthentic way of being that is missing stuff that really nearly no social context can handle well, even mm. those contexts. Mm. And so they often fa- feel very inauthentic and fake to me. And that gives me an internal conflict that I just find off-putting. I would prefer yeah. to deal with my true authentic experience in silence and just on my own terms. So I actually find that a deeper practice. But this is just me. And, and mm-hmm. I don't mean for an instant to think to say that these things aren't very valuable, that a lot of people get a lot out of them, that mm. they can really make people feel heard and connected and explore sides of themselves that they might not get to. So this is my own stuff, and I'm, I'm putting it very much on me, nothing external <laughs> necessarily specific about these things, just my mm. reaction. Mm-mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I think you raise a point that's um, important, but seems to be 
open to a kind of response that might come out of the conversation we've we've just had about these integral states, because it seems to me that those kinds of qualities of space are a kind of invitation to do things differently, right? To engage in almost asocial or untypical social practices, which normal society doesn't provide for. And in that sense, there's definitely a positive. The solution, I think, to what you've described is just to integrate the possibility for one of these other bands or modes to operate alongside or afterwards, which could be the existential one or one of the others. But uh, I take your point. It made me think of some of the, the men's group stuff that I did when I was very young back in the 90s when it was pretty popular. Yeah. And I agree with you. There, there was at times a certain sense of, um, of performance, of being invited to perform alongside others and almost enact intimacy rather than actually experience some genuine form of intimacy. Yes. You're right that that is related in part to the degrees of exposure that we can withstand and how that both uh, stimulates and aggravates certain more primal emotional imbalance or, or need that, that, that all of us carry around to some degree. So my temptation would not be to say, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm quite happy to try anything out, really. <laughs> but to say what's missing and, and is there an opportunity to, you know, to be in service to making it function more effectively? And, and if uh, Vince and co are listening, maybe, maybe they've given some thought to that or maybe it just works for them and it doesn't work for you. But maybe both things are true at the same time. But uh, thank you for sharing that anyway. Yeah, you're welcome. So you've done a pretty good job, actually. You've managed to present it in a way which is perfectly acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> perfectly. I, I'm hesitant. I cringe around the word perfection, but uh, okay. Well, good for you. I'm kind of being overly nice. So you just have to excuse my Britishness. <laughs> Thank you. But no, in the sense that um, perfectly, what's the word? Uh, digestible. There we go. Digestible. I'll use that yeah. word there. It goes back to the point I kind of started with at the beginning. If we just get rid of the idea of these being hierarchical, if we get rid of the idea that we have to get to level seven, and if we get rid of the idea that, to build on a point you said before, that somehow there's an end goal anywhere, because I think that's the other side that's often not mentioned of like a final state or there being a kind of merging with God or unity or emptiness, is we often forget that the practical implications of that are that there are no end goals here, that there is ongoing change, as you well know, and relating, etc., etc., etc. But the practical everyday consequence of that is that at some point, we kind of have to start getting used to the fact that we can't say, oh, I'm going to get over there and then the work's done. Or I'm going to be there and it's completely complete. Right. Now, it's not to say that transformations don't take place, right? Or you can't break permanently from something that you were dragging around. But the sense that the idea you would somehow be finished with these things is really a, a fundamental fallacy or even a hoax of yes. religious and spiritual traditions. Absolutely. And once you get rid of that, I mean, the, the problem doesn't seem to be there anymore. We don't have uh, Wilbur's hubris. We don't have his obsession with this monist state that he wants to get to. We kind of have a far more workable, down-to-earth, dare I say, model that I think could be adapted and could be expanded and played with by, well, pretty much anyone in any context. Isn't that the original ideal anyway? Yeah, absolutely. And so, as I said, both things are in Wilbur, and I just like the one more than the other. I like <laughs> I like them right. on equal footing, uh, with equal validity, all playing together as nicely as we can possibly get them to play together, and recognizing their intrinsic tensions as well, yeah. as part of the the you know that's just the way the thing is. Yeah. So 
Why don't we do this? Why don't we talk about the thing that you always come back to, which is pragmatism? So maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the experiences that you've engaged with, practices you've done in order to come to know some of these states more fully or come to integrate them to some degree. Many people will know already about your story from your your book on hardcore dharma about how you engaged well, with several of them, but in particular, let's say seven, just for convenience sake for now. Where did you find yourself going after that? So after this Arhat ship, where did you feel like you needed to do more work? Was it the, the ones in the middle someplace? And what kind of practices or experiences did you seek out in order to address some imbalance or some need for greater integration? Do you have a, a couple of ideas or stories you might share? Um, Sure, but I'd actually like to start back before band seven. So most of my life was dealing with band three, mm, mm, right? Okay. So that's most of my life. When I think back on the conf of the story of my life, it's very band three, right? That's most of it. When I was a kid, there was a tension between what I wanted and what I got, what I thought I should be doing and what I actually did and how I moderated these forces. When I, th- I go back and I feel into the stories, that's the main band for most of what drives the story of my life the conflicts, the complexities, the decisions, the the critical points where it went one way versus another, the the conflicts, the that that's the story, and so and still is most of the story. Right? So, and along the way, I've certainly learned a bunch about psychology. I've I was in therapy for a while after my first marriage ended. I found that very useful. I've read a lot. I've thought a lot. I've felt a lot. I've been in some group therapy stuff. Along the way, um, I've benefited tremendously from Western psychological theory, um, you know, and and so and that still continues to inform a lot of things. I, I have conversations daily that are like, "Hey, you're 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 taking sort of a you know you know like I'll have a conversation with someone and say, you know, you, you just took a, a very limited statement you know that i said about you and you turned it into an absolute and then uh, i feel that's like that's not making me feel good about how this interaction is going well those kinds of skills are are helpful right or that's you know that's making me kind of irritated i'm sorry you know or i'm kind of sad about that like just that really simple level of just basic psychological functioning is something i still work on and it's something still very valuable to human relationships and to to processing the strange life we find ourselves in. So that's actually kind of where I want to start, because actually I think that's the the one that most of us really need more work on. Right. And yeah. so kudos to Western psychology, right? Yeah, yeah. So like to to hit that one, you know, hard. And then um, I did spend some time, you know, in my youth uh, in a Presbyterian religious setting and a youth group and sort of worship settings and and all that. And I found that really interesting. And I still go back to teachings that are very sort of band two and band one and can find them very helpful and powerful and stories like I love reading fantasy stories. I love sci-fi. I love which is kind of like the same thing just through the tech lens. And I I love those things, right? And I still think a lot about, I got a lot of lessons about life from my favorite author, Jack Vance, right? So like, which is, it's all myth and story and, and you know, with a bit of philosophy thrown in. But like that still forms a huge part of the way I process life and, re- and figure out how to try to relate to it better. 
And then intellectually, so, you know, I'm pretty smart. I read a lot. I, I read a lot of modern physics and how it integrates with stuff and, you know, a pretty good smattering of philosophers, you know, the, the SNB kids probably p- critique my, you know, sometimes superficial knowledge of some of their theories or whatever. That's fine. Okay, good. But, I, you know, I got a basic grounding in, in mathematics and physics and chemistry and biology and all that stuff. And, and I found that very helpful. So I'm very grateful for the education I was able to get. And that has also informed a lot of this. I couldn't be doing anything this like this podcast or my job or my work or anything if I didn't have that. Right. So thank you for all my teachers along the way. Mm. And then, you know, so that still is a lot of the foundation. And then band five, I'm very happy for the yoga teachers. You know, I've studied about yoga and physical exercise and physical training and biking and hiking and camping and and all, all of just sort of basic, like how to care for this body. I've learned a lot from the body workers I've gone to. I've, I've gotten a lot of massage in the last 10 years as this body started to do some less nice things as my connective tissue disorder gets weirder. Um, I've got, a, you know, the light end of Ehlers Danlos, which is, you know, just makes things a little bit complicated. Mm. And um, I've been, you know, so very thankful for that and my medical training, right? So I, I learned a lot by studying medicine, which is studying sort of body-mind system because, you know, it can have that element to it. It's better end. And I still um, exercise. I still do some yoga sometimes. I still think about my posture. I'm happy for all of those things I've learned along the way. And then sort of, you know, band six stuff. I'm happy both for the profound unitive experiences I've had through meditation, through learning jhanas, through learning to concentrate and steady and still my mind, Um, uh, you know, for a a few of the psychedelic experiences I had that sort of opened things up and, you know, earlier on in my life that was were interesting didn't stick, but it was an interesting taste of some some states that would later become um, more accessible and and more integrated. Mm. And. Um, so very helpful for all of the people who taught me to think globally, right? So to, to be able to think about the planet as a system, to be able to think about society and systems terms, to be able to think with that paradigm. So that's been, I've gotten that from a whole lot of influences from the hippies who were, you know, teaching me about the ecosystem when I was a kid to, you know, a lot of that. So very thankful for that. But a lot of those, um, sort of integrating that in a sort of a more complete way did come through meditation training, Mm. right? Where you can, learn reproducibly through quieting one's mind and inclining to these things and training in traditional, you know, with traditional teachers. One can, you know, as a mechanical almost thing, learn to get into much more unitive states where the boundaries do dissolve, things do sort of open up. And those are just learnable skills. You can go study with Pauk or Shyla Catherine or, you know, Lee Brasington or, I don't know, pick your favorite tradition or find it in some non-Buddhist tradition, whatever you like. That, that, those are accessible. They're just a doable thing. Right? It's, it's like a muscle. You can lo- learn it and train it. Mm. Um, and I'm very thankful I had the opportunity to go on some treats with some really good people. And then the non-duality stuff, you know, I talk about a lot in my book, but just noticing sensate experience come and go, happen on its own, all flow through. Um, that those, that's a whole series of trainings. I was very, very lucky to have the resources, the time, the encouragement, the people I found to be able to go on retreats and just train to get to know something, um, very profound and straightforwardly obvious, not weird or esoteric about my spiritual experience. Mm. Um, 
sort of now I'm going to go all the way down to band one because that's the stuff that kind of, you know, I started out as a kid with very band one thinking, very mythical, magical, right, stories. And I, you know, fairies or trolls or angels or whatever all seemed perfectly reasonable to me when I was young, Santa Claus, blah, blah, you know. But then I went back with a lot of the meditative skills and went back and learned ceremonial magical techniques and some frameworks and some other new age frameworks and stuff, which again, it's easy to sort of poo poo and go, it's all just new age crazy or whatever some people will do. And, um, but actually I found some of that actually very useful and then Jungian stuff and learning about archetypes and shadows and Joseph Campbell and then just doing magical practices where I learned to actually sometimes get into experiences where my, fusion of concentration and inclination in usually retreat context, but not always, you know, I interacted with entities and felt powerful energetic experiences and, and traveled to realms. So I've, you know, suddenly like the body in the room disappear that I'm meditating and I'm somewhere else in some other totally different experience that's as real or seemingly more real than ordinary waking life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the dream work I've done. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've been doing dream stuff kind of naturally since I was a kid. I'm very thankful for all of that. So that, that's sort of a short list. Mm-hmm. Um, of gratitude really uh, for opportunity <laughs> and you know thanks but but those are some of the things i found helpful it <laughs> was that sort of what you were looking for well i'm not really looking for anything in particular but that's certainly a nice way to respond to to the question i posed and i think it's a nice um and i i guess i'm experiencing it as an invitation really that could be useful within the last thing i'd like to talk about which is a more general exploration of how some of this might be applied within a view of adult development, which is a topic that, you know, is being discussed more and more these days and necessarily so, because I think that what you've described in great part is, as, as I like to use the word maturation, I can't help but view it within that lens. I mean, you know, it's not just sure. number one to number two to number three, right? It takes a, a mature adult to accept that their love for number four or their obsession with number seven or whatever it is yeah. could actually be a problem. And that actually for them, a step forwards is not just emotional work, right? Which we know is an issue often for people who are highly spiritual, but actually the maturation could be accepting that, you know, I need to um, up my intellectual skills by reading or learning or actually going back to school. Or it could be, you know, I'm so rigid and so frigid in my emotional expression that I need to go and do some, uh, I don't know, five rhythms dance where you're kind of incarnating that first realm, the magical realm through symbolic gesture in a, in a group with others and i love five ri- five rhythms dance by the way that was like my, one of my favorite things about being in cambridge weirdly enough oh, there we go. Uh, aside from the intellectual discussion which was impressive yeah. but actually the thing i looked forward the most <laughs> was actually the five rhythms dance group there so nice. so shout out to cam's dance if you're listening to this you were delightful people <laughs> and just i uh, loved uh, dancing with you all great great and it's great that you managed to get that balance then between the two right because that helps obviously yeah you know, you, you know what the podcast's about. You know that we're often bringing this kind of critical view, but you also know from your conversations with me that, you know, I'm not some kind of uh, intellectual academic type. I feel that that's been a large part of what's missing from much discourse in Western Buddhism and spirituality, which is a more critical approach. But to me, it always has to marry itself to experience in a more global view of the person who's in the world and in society and and exploring and engaging with different practices. And I've always tried to encourage people who are highly intellectual to pay attention to the emotional, but not the emotional as just therapeutic, 
which is one of the cruxes of, you know, the new age, but the emotional as abandon and as going into realms where there's not that kind of aloofness or that intellectual distance, which becomes a kind of means for avoiding, in this case, to use the model you've presented, engaging with one of these paradigms of being or these modes or these bands. One of the things that drives me to to push for a more integral approach in my own way is just, I, I think it's quite sad that, that people can spend so much of their lives hiding out in one or two or three of these bands and missing out on the joys and wonders of great and great taste of the others. On a good day, if we're fortunate enough to live in a society that permits us not just to be surviving, what a loss, right, to spend your entire life stuck at four or one or three, or, or at least to believe you're stuck there, right? To be obsessed with that state. Yes, definitely. It's kind of like this thing, you know, where kids often become romanticized, but they don't have to be, of course. And often what they are is that kind of invitation to remember that we're far more complex and human experience is far richer than many paradigms would have us believe. And it seems like the the good potential on a good day of, of the integral approach is to remind us fundamentally of that basic truth. Absolutely. Good. So there you go, listeners. Go out there. Uh, maybe you could start experimenting and uh, <laughs> doing some five rhythms dance or, or reading up a book of, uh, I don't know, Francois Laruelle. <laughs> <laughs> so look, Daniel, um, you know, we could head off in new directions, but I think that's actually quite a nice uh, place to bring our conversation towards an end. And it's a manageable length that I think most listeners will have managed to stick with. Is there any final point that we need to add in before we finish up or something that you were dying to get off your chest or add? Yeah, I'm just so thankful for you uh, tolerating <laughs> going into the Ken Wilber land and showing interest. So I'm very grateful for that. And I would say if if you can't laugh at some of this stuff, then there's also something wrong. So there there's, there should be a way to not take any of this too seriously, mm. to hold it somewhat lightly, to have a playful attitude that can be serious when it needs to be, but isn't serious when, you know, uh, unnecessarily mm. and isn't rigid unnecessarily. And so that's that's the only other thing I would add because um, sort of none of those bands necessarily addresses the question of humor and just a good attitude, mm. which I think is just so important for all of this. Oh, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think you've actually just laid out one of the keys to not getting stuck in either of them, right? Right. Yeah. And maybe that's a good sign. If anybody is feeling a bit stuck in any of those states while listening to this interview, you know, try a bit of humor. It might help you get yeah. out of it. <laughs> and avoid weaponizing and being a, a brat about this stuff. It's easy sometimes mm. to weaponize these things to get other people. Oh, you, if you just understood integral theory, then, you know, right. And I can do that myself, right? So I have to watch that in myself. But it, it can become, it can take something that can be beautiful and just suddenly make it toxic. So mm-hmm. just be careful with that. Mm. And obviously, people can find their own way of coming up with their own integral theory if they really want to, right? Yeah. Even if a person was to go from having no concept of the fact that their experience of of, be, of selfhood in the world of being, et cetera, et cetera, could incorporate just two or three aspects for most people, that's already movement forwards, right? It's already a step beyond the singular narrative about who they are, or the old dichotomies which we see manifesting in a million different ways, and not just in band two, I think it was you were talking about. But uh, yeah, Daniel, thanks for that, mate. That was great. And uh, listeners, enjoy. That's where we're ending this one. Bye for now, folks. <laughs>